0: They wear the black hats. That's what makes them bad.
1: Right.
2: Uh,
0: Yeah. Were they?
1: Were they wearing black hats? It's
0: it's a metaphor, Joe. Right. I know these things are sometimes lost on you, but they they might as well have been. I know. Welcome to episode 96 of the Movie Bite podcast, a show all about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, July the 8th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today are two men who may indeed be from another planet just trying to make their way home. It is Clark Douglas and Joe Darnell. How are you two today?
1: Thank you guys. Uh, thank you for welcoming me back yeah. <laughs> a few minutes ago. I felt like, uh, this was like a uh, family reunion or something on a podcast.
0: Yeah, it is a podcast
1: family
2: group hug.
0: Yeah. Although interestingly, and, and by the way, how are you Clark? I'm good. Interestingly, I don't know that all three of us have, have, have we all three been on the same pod, same episode at the same time?
2: I'm pretty sure we have, um, and I'm trying to recall when it was and what we were talking about. I have a. We probably talked about Batman. I think Star we did at Wars, one point
0: a Spielberg film. I'm going to solve this, mystery. I'm going to go to
2: people oh, the on the Hobbit. Universe. It was the Hobbit film.
1: It was the were first. We all Hobbit on the film. Hobbit.
0: Oh, uh-huh. that's right. I remember that now. So. Okay.
1: We may have had another episode before that.
0: Well, I mean, I know that that uh, Clark, you filled in for me once, and then uh, th- then you filled in for Joe once as well. So I was thinking mm-hmm. maybe we hadn't both been on the all three been on the same podcast episode at the same time. But I I think that maybe we mm. have. Now that you say that, um, the Misty DVD Movie Bite Podcast number seventy three. I'm loading that up now to see <laughs> just just to double check myself. But but you know this is uh. uh
1: there's spoilers in that title, by the way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, yeah, so there, there it is. No, uh, you know what, Joe? You were not on that episode.
1: Oh, what? All right, this is not the the Hobbit episode, are you? talking about the hobbit episode it's the
0: second hobbit movie let me check the first I know, one i know, I know I the, on the second first hobbit one. yeah joe was yeah on. there we go um so it was the first one tj draper joe darnell anthony pascal uh clark douglas and marcus Pittman. there we go i know your that show
2: better loaded. than you do tj
0: i'm sorry you two are talking at once try again <laughs> clark
2: uh, i said that episode was loaded
0: yes it was <laughs> it was very very loaded We'd, we've tried not to go quite that crazy since then joe what were you saying
1: I don't even remember. (laughs) We were (laughs) overloading again. I'm sorry.
2: Well, I know since we're all such big celebrities now in the years that have passed since that time, it's very expensive (laughs) to get us all in one place at one time, but the contract negotiations have worked out, and here we are. Here we are.
0: We also Uh, have a little bit of an announcement uh, to make, and and, uh, Clark, when I scheduled you to be on the podcast all month, which I want to stick to, by the way, because I love having (laughs) you on the show. You're not contractually released. Uh, (laughs) um, But when I scheduled you to be on the show all month in place of Chad – Um, I did not, this none of this had come up, none of it was brewing. Uh, and then lately, Joe, you and I have been uh, instant messaging a lot. Uh, you've been uh, uh, you've been seeming to want to get back into podcasting a little bit more. And uh, you said, Hey, what the heck, I'll I'll join the podcast again. And 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 almost assuming, I think, that I would I would let you do that, but no, I'm, I'm kidding. I I'm very glad to announce that Joe, you're going to be returning on a much more regular basis to the podcast and I could not be happier.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be back. I really needed the hiatus uh, to clear my mind and work on some creative projects and settle what I wanted to do with them and so now that I've figured all that out I'm glad to be back and uh, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. I, I like this podcast and I'm going to be taking a more serious look into other podcasts like our other show the movieology podcast. Well, this
0: is not the first time you've threatened to to really focus on the movieology podcast but you've been really, you've been sending me artwork and you've been bothering me day and night about what about this URL? Can I get this URL that would redirect to the show and, and you just, you know, all hours of the night you've been working on this thing. So I, I feel like maybe you're actually going to bring it back
1: yeah i'm just trying to take over all of the podcasts uh, except for the ones that you know you're in okay so.
2: well that, that's fine with me this is your well, show i personally feel really betrayed by this but welcome back i guess <laughs> <I'm>
0: sorry clark <laughs> i'll try to give you preference since you're technically no, no, that's, that's awesome. clark,
2: I'm, I'm very clark, happy.
1: clark i'm wearing a blue shirt you're probably wearing a red shirt tj's wearing the yellow shirts so, i mean what can we say
2: i'm wearing a gray shirt to reflect my moral ambiguity <laughs>
1: I'm not even sure what just happened.
0: <laughs> but you two actually live down in the uh, in the same area, so I'll let you two meet up and duke it out at some point.
2: Yeah, we're not too too horribly far from each other. A little further than we used to be.
0: Oh, but. some moving has happened. Oh, that's right. You moved recently, Joe. That's yeah. Well, um, enough of the meta talk where, where people have, <laughs> are glad to hear the announcement and now they're like, move on. We're here to hear movie news. We're not here to hear Joe Darnell and, and T.J. Draper and Clark Douglas news. So um, let's talk about Star Wars 7 because, as I've mentioned uh, last week and the week before and the week before that, whenever there's any Star Wars news, we have to talk about it. And, uh, so the news now, uh, and, and we've, 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 talked about this rumor before. First, the rumor was that, uh, it was going to be like two or three weeks that Harrison Ford was going to be able to have to take off. And then it was like eight weeks and then it was like six months. And now the, the news is coming in. Uh, this is actually official. It was just buried at the bottom of a casting announcement on starwars.com and, um, and In August, the team will take a brief two-week hiatus while adjustments to the current production schedule are made as actor Harrison Ford recovers from his leg injury. Harrison is doing well and is looking forward to returning to the set soon. Shooting remains on track to wrap in the fall with the film scheduled for a release date on December 18th.
1: He's really already been off on leave for what a couple of weeks for the injury, so it's two more weeks is what they're saying. The
0: way I've got it figured is that the doctor has said, this is when you can return to work, and they're going to run out of things to do to shoot without him, and that's going to leave them two weeks to be off the production. Which actually isn't too bad, really, when you think about it. No. Yeah, so uh, that's, I mean, there's really not a lot to discuss here other than, you know, it's kind of the running thing now on the show to talk about Star Wars news. Well, I
1: wonder if they're going to make Harrison, you know, use a double, you know, for more of the future stuff. I
0: am quite certain that any shot that did not involve his face has probably been shot with a double already.
2: And and I'm wondering, I I guess we'll find out how much this has affected the production when we see the movie and find out whether uh, there are a lot of scenes in which uh, some guy runs into the room. And he's like, hey, you guys, uh, Han couldn't be here, but he really wanted me to tell you such and such and (laughs) such and such. such. So just passing that on from him, but he's not here right now, but he'll be back soon.
0: J.J. Abrams is a lot of things, but I I don't feel like we would see that particular thing from him.
1: (laughs) Or we may just wind up seeing a lot of blue hologram Han you
2: know, <laughs> maybe we'll I see. still yeah. like my hospital bed green screen idea.
0: But. <laughs> well, I mean, there is that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think that the uh, we will give that all the due consideration that is um, a, a appropriate to that. I'm suggestion. sure Mr.
2: Abrams is seriously considering it right now. Yeah,
0: I'm sure he is. We've submitted it as a as an option to him. And uh, he I think his people said that he would they would get back with us yes. when they decided to to take that option. So, uh <laughs> Yes, that's, uh, that's that's kind of all where that's at, and that's kind of how far that went.
1: <laughs> so, you know, TJ, you had some follow-up about Transformers 4.
0: I did, because we talked about Transformers 4 last
1: week, and uh-huh. um, I don't... And it's still number one, which is like crazy talk, right? It's just nuts,
0: just nuts. I, I don't think Clark did... I, I had a hard time deciphering your opinion for sure, but I think you were a little negative towards it, if I... oh, yeah.
2: yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Man.
0: So the news here from Lindsay Barr over at Entertainment Weekly is that Transformers Age of Extinction showed its summer might once more by holding on to the number one spot in its second weekend release, grossing an estimated $36.4 million from 4,233 locations and effectively shutting out the slate of new releases. Michael Bay's explosive epic also hit $400 million internationally after just 12 days in release.
1: The gross domestic or whatever that it yeah, the domestic total doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the
2: worldwide total.
0: 30, 333. Point, uh, I'm sorry, 339.4 million as of when I wrote this article on Monday.
2: And I don't know if it's already uh, become the biggest film of all time in China, but it was on track to hit that this week. I I don't know if it's hit it yet.
0: I actually did see that news, and I'm not sure whether I'll post that in Movie bite. It's so um, disheartening and disappointing, and I just don't (laughs) even want to know it. But I did see the headline that it is now the number one film of all time in China, which I I don't want to... I don't want to be racist or anything, but come on, people.
2: <laughs> what can well, I say? It, it, it is something that that's very intriguing. Is that uh, this is one of a few movies which have suggested that maybe the American box office isn't quite as crucial to a movie's success as it used to be. It's still very important. It's still a huge part of it. Yeah. But it is possible for a movie to do okay here and do really well overseas and certainly make tons of money. Uh, the Pacific Rim. Uh, is another example of that or it's not the Pacific rim but just Pacific rim right uh, another movie that did all right here but made a ton of money overseas and a sequel got greenlit as a result
1: For the i think that's yeah i think that's exactly what we're seeing here that the international audience is outweighing the significance mm. of the domestic
0: yeah, for the record, Pacific Rim made 101.8 million here domestically and 309.2 million uh in foreign monies, uh, bringing the wow. worldwide total to 411 million. So no- nothing at all to sneeze at. And I think we have been seeing that trend more and more. Well, if you take uh perhaps individual countries with the exception of China, um, you know, we probably still are closer to the top. But when you combine all that, and you realize that the market is so much bigger than just the US soil. Uh, yeah, I think we're seeing definitely a shift in, in the filmmaking world and where the money's coming from in that way. The Transformers
2: one- too th- th- this isn't, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off there, Joe, but uh, th- this isn't like some coincidence. They specifically courted a Chinese audience yeah. with this movie and made a lot of sort of concessions in the script mm-hmm. to try and blatantly appeal to that audience. And that's why, frankly, it's one of the biggest hits of all time.
1: Yeah. There is another thing I'd like to know about, and uh, I don't hear anybody talking about it yet, but I would like to know what tra- Transformers 4 has done for Hasbro in merchandising. Because, you know, Transformers is originally a, you know, merchandising property and we don't hear about that much these days. I know that we like to talk about the merchandising of Star Wars and how that's where the majority of George Lucas's money came from and his, his uh, filmmaking empire. And these days, when you look at something absurd like these numbers for the Transformers movie, I wonder, does that also mean that the Transformers movie toys are far outselling Other franchise toys like say the marvel movies or other disney property movies or um even the likes of the other transformers merchandise uh i don't know i i just find that i know that's off topic a little bit but i still think it's uh, relevant and it would also give us a an idea of where the culture is because uh adults who buy toys are primarily the collectors or at least so we like to think they're the collectors and uh with transformers movies i i know that a lot of parents take their kids to see them but i don't think that they're age appropriate for children and the toys are clearly age appropriate for children so we have a tug of war where the target audience is for teenagers and up and the toys target audience is for teenagers and down so I, i don't know i just i would find it very interesting to know what their numbers are
2: yeah. Well, I don't know how the toy sales are doing, but I know, or at least I'm guessing, that Advil Advil sales have spiked considerably as a result of the Transformers <laughs> movies.
0: Are you saying this movie might give some people a headache?
2: i uh, just subtly suggesting that. Yeah,
0: it's a subtle, subtle, very subtle. I, I couldn't. You. Yeah.
1: I think the. <laughs> I, I, I see what Michael you Bay did on there. Planet Earth is proof positive that it, I think Michael Bay on Planet Earth is good for Advil sales. So. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well, speaking of of Michael Bay, uh, some of us want to know. What is Bayhem? And and uh, so I found this uh, wonderful video essay, which I greatly enjoyed, by Tony Zhao. And and I really need to like bookmark his uh, his his Vimeo page because I want to keep an eye on on what he's doing. This is a wonderful uh, kind of an essay, as I said, on on uh, on Michael Bay's filmmaking, and uh, really kind of dug into what gives what what makes Michael Bay appealing, and what is Bayhem, you know, which is. A specific kind of mayhem, uh, that is specific to Michael Bay and the way he makes films. And it really broke down, I thought, just how, on a technical level, oftentimes Michael Bay's films, um, are, are very, very good, but he, he pours every technique that he has into every shot that he has, and it just sort of makes this, chaotic mess of a film that has no ups or downs. It's all kind of this one level. I don't know. I thought there's a lot of good stuff in here. What, I, I know you guys have thoughts on this as well.
1: I know that earlier on when the first Transformers came out, that people were really impressed with just the Um, presence of the Autobot vehicles in the movie that their color and lighting and reflection really popped and made them seem alive and more uh, I I guess vivid Mm -hmm. than a lot of the big action films featuring cars very prominently and I remember the time What was noted was that Michael Bay actually got his start in television commercials, making uh, car commercials. And he was obviously very familiar with cars and and how to make them look great on TV. And I think that because of his roots, we see the guy uh, pays a lot of attention to making every second count. You know, a lot of filmmakers that get started by thinking that they're going to make motion pictures and so they, all their practice, all their hobby, uh, video hobby uh, early on in life and their education is centered around making motion pictures. They don't come from that standpoint. But Michael Bay, professionally focusing on commercials early on, meant that he, he wanted to keep your attention with every second. And that's kind of ingrained, if you will. Yeah. Um. I think that that has a heavy influence, and that wasn't brought up in Bayham, but this is a really good video that kind of brings it up to today where we're seeing the culmination of lots of patterns, more so than just his work with cars and what he can do to make their metal look so good.
0: Well, yeah, and in the case of Transformers uh, 4, it was almost like michael bay has become a parody of michael bay almost i don't know i, I and i felt like this video kind of really showed how the progression of michael bay has gone as well clark i, uh, I know you had some thoughts you, you, yeah, you it, just recently watched this video
2: it's it's an excellent piece of critical analysis and it really does um sort of seriously examine michael bay's kind of crazy chaotic visual style and uh unpacks kind of the method behind the madness and there is a method to it but oh, it yeah. uh you know, ultimately doesn't add up to a whole lot. And uh, it's really sort of those same techniques being used over and over and over and over again without really much of a let-up just sort of adds to something that feels numbing after a while. And uh, it's really intriguing. And, you know, a lot of these shots, just looking at some of these self-contained images, they look stunning. They really do. But it, it just is too much over the course of a... Two or three hour film.
0: Well, yeah, it's like an onslaught, or you're 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 kind of assaulted both visually and probably aud- audibly as well with everything that Michael Bay's throwing at you throughout the entire film. And yeah, I thought Zhao did a, a tremendous uh, job in in kind of laying out. He even pointed out at one point how Michael Bay talks about this scene in the specific movie that he really likes, but he can't explain why. And mm-hmm. then Zhao goes on to break down. Well, I know why. Here's why. Uh, you know, and 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 it's not that it's a bad technique or anything. It's just that you know. cool down a little bit.
2: (laughs) And I think one of the strongest points that he made, too, is that uh, he he doesn't really differentiate between a really important, really epic moment and just kind of casual moment. He shoots them the exact same way, and so there aren't any Real levels to the filmmaking, which is frustrating.
0: Yeah, I loved how he would show uh, the dolly shots where they would do- be dollying in on somebody's face. And, you know, that's a that's a great technique that that really brings out some importance. But he was doing it. He was showing where he was doing it in in, in places where it just wasn't called for.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and he contrasted that to uh, a similar sort of shot in Django Unchained, which is a really effective shot in yes. a really important moment. Yes. You know, but it, he, he's not doing that all the time, just sort of willy nilly.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is highly recommended. This will be in the show notes. By the way, the show notes for this episode are at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 96. Highly recommend this video. I think all three of us would highly recommend it if you're hmm. in, at all interested in critical analysis of films. And, and one day when I grow up, I, I hope I can analyze films in this fashion.
1: I wonder what Quentin Tarantino thinks of Michael Bay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, I, I'd really be curious to know because Quentin Tarantino is kind of um, an iconoclast of sorts when it comes to cinema opinions. He, he's he's the sort of guy who will, you know, like some classy Oscar-nominated films and then put some really just sort of critically loathed B-movies on his list of the best films of the year. Yeah. Uh, he has some very quirky taste. Uh, if, if you look back at some of his sort of best films of the year list from the past few years, some interesting choices he's made.
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah yeah and I, I actually did like django unchained okay um I, I that may be the only quentin tarantino film i've seen a sacrilege i know but it's just so many films to see <laughs> um so well, yeah and
1: speaking of quentin tarantino tj you know there is this new movie poster out with henry cavill in it for um zach snyder's I'm,
2: I'm not following your segue <laughs> I, i'm waiting for the connection here
1: <laughs> well I'm thinking of Zack Snyder, Quentin Tarantino, and Michael Bay. I've always kind of put them into the same category. Really? And we see that a lot with uh, the the Man of Steel. Um, Basically, wouldn't y'all agree that... They, they belong to the same culture. They belong to the same uh, group audience.
2: I
0: would more quickly put Zack Snyder there. He's a lot of Flash and a little substance, for sure.
2: Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't put Quentin Tarantino there at all. I don't think he's ever made a, a blockbuster of the same sort of scale that Snyder and Bay have. And he's also somebody who I think is far more interested in characters and dialogue than in action sequences, despite the fact that he's helmed, you know, the Kill Bill movies and some yeah. sort of action-heavy stuff. He's very much a uh, a sort of story-driven director, where I wouldn't say that's true of Mr. Snyder and Mr. Bay. Right, well,
0: just look at mm. Django Unchained. I mean, there was a yeah. lot of character in that movie, you know. Mm. Regardless of any other opinions you may have about the movie, there's a lot of, of story and character development in that film. Yeah. So
1: okay. Well, y'all
0: but I can so. see the I, Snyder
2: I, comparison yeah. for sure. They're I mean, they have different styles, but yeah, they're in the same category.
1: Yeah, I don't. I'm not necessarily relating the the films per se, but I'm thinking that their audience has a lot of crossover. Uh, worldwide, if you will, um, if not necessarily in the States or among the people who appreciate really good film. If you're just looking at the fact that they're all action heavy, special effects heavy, and um, oftentimes they very gritty and they're focusing on a lot of, um, well, just uh, violence of all sorts and explosions to try I, I, and tantalize the audience and keep up the energy.
2: I, I see where you're going with that there, but I think again, the difference here, Quentin Tarantino, I believe is going to find a lot more defenders from the sort of, serious film community precisely because he puts so much more emphasis on characters and dialogue and story yeah, whereas a lot a of those point. same folks are going to be sort of taking Mr. Snyder and Mr. Bay to task on a regular basis.
0: Mm. Well getting back to what you were talking about Joe is this gritty uh, and, and, and I've taken to calling this film Batman 5 Superman because of the Roman numeral they inserted in there <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah this, it's this gritty Batman poster uh, the Batman versus Superman poster uh featuring uh superman um if you can call him that um yeah i i i i equipped in the uh, the article where i posted this this poster that you know i'm 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 certainly going to uh i'm certainly going to go run out and see this film now now that we've now that we've got the gritty dark r- dark superman going on that's that's always what superman's been about for me <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I'm just looking over the poster, and I know it's still early in the production. It feels like something that the fan community would have come up with on DeviantArt.com or something. Exactly. It, it's it, it's got a um, sky captain in the world of tomorrow sort of background, and he's standing on top of a building, and it's raining around him, and his hair is slicked back. It and doesn't it it have looks, that
0: have it that ultra like somebody took it into Photoshop and did it, the sharpen tool a few too many times.
1: But that's the thing about Snyder's work that the man of steel felt a little bit more natural throughout because we were seeing moments where it was in his childhood in Kansas and I don't know, it didn't look like there was a lot of film grain technique or uh, film noir style to sure. it. But that is something that Snyder likes in his films when he can reach out to it, when he can apply it to his films and because he has every excuse to now that we are pr- going to be a, uh, visiting Gotham City and tying Batman in, I am really frustrated that the poster doesn't really speak Superman to me. It no. speaks Batman Gotham to me. And uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really kind of bummed by that because I like Christopher Nolan's Batman way better. And had we had the opportunity to see a, uh, I I kind of like to think that there was a lot of hope for a sequel to The Man of Steel before they decided to tie Batman into it.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's true, and I, I think that they were initially planning to make a straight sort of Superman sequel Yes, The Man of Steel. But I think there are two reasons that they didn't. One, that I believe has been discussed on this show – is that they wanted to catch up to Marvel and quickly get into this whole sort of interconnected franchise and lead into a Justice League movie as quickly as possible. And that's going to take a long time if you don't sort of take this sort of shortcut. Uh, the other sure. reason is that Man of Steel wasn't really a very big hit, honestly, and uh, the Batman movies were. And frankly, sticking Batman in there is a pretty you know, surefire way to boost the box office a little bit.
0: Yeah, we'll see about that. I I don't know many people who are excited though about this. I I, I don't either, but I
2: can just about guarantee you that it's going to be a bigger hit than Man of Steel. Yeah, Man of
0: Steel now domestically it actually brought in 291 million dollars and foreign was 377, so worldwide it's 668, which is not, you know, not not uh, pocket change or anything, but it I think isn't, they were but hoping it's, it's... for better.
2: They they were. If you compare it to other superhero movies in a similar budget range, it it was regarded as a slight disappointment. Yeah, the fever pitch never approached yeah. The Fever
1: pitch never approached the Avengers or Captain America. So
0: no. so Captain America was a uh, quite a bit less budget, uh, 170 million compared to um uh sorry, what was the other one? Uh, 225 million was Man of Steel. So 170 million mm-hmm. and it has made 257.8 million domestically, 454 million foreign, bringing that total up to 711.8 million worldwide. And, yeah. and that's not even the most popular of the of the franchise by any means. No, I mean I
2: know Iron Man 3 and The Avengers were both bigger hits than that. Yes. So. Um, I'm I'm intrigued by the title here too, the V instead of versus. And Zack Snyder actually offered an explanation for this and he said uh and I quote, uh this is meant to keep it from being a straight versus movie, even in the most subtle way. Mm. I, I have no <laughs> idea what that means.
0: Yeah, that that sounds like uh It's versus to but me. they're
1: not.
2: Right. So Batman v Superman, uh, is it supposed to mean something other than versus? Uh, I think it's
1: going to be a courtroom drama. That's what they're saying.
2: <laughs> Batman Valentine's <laughs> Superman? I, I don't know what what we're looking at here. Yeah, I,
0: I, I have no – I will see this film just because I'll have to, but I have no uh, desire to see it. I'm not looking forward to it mm. in the slightest. Yeah, Warner so Brothers has kind of
2: dropped the ball with their DC Comics properties, other than Batman, just kind of time and time again, and even with Batman, sometimes. Well, the, so. b-
0: frankly, the only only good thing that Warner Brothers has done uh, with the superheroes lately is the most recent incarnation of Batman. Batman before that was pretty disjointed. I, I don't I, that that is Warner Brothers property before that, right?
2: Yes, it was, and but, I mean, I, I think the first two Burton movies are all right, uh, but uh, you know. <laughs> now,
0: when I was, has Superman always been a Warner Brothers uh, product? Uh, franchise because the first superman was quite
2: good yeah yeah it was right i think I it was I'd, I'd I'd have to double check that i'm not 100 percent sure
0: the second one left a little be desired and the third and fourth movies are trash but the first one was quite good
2: I, yeah I the first the first is still the best of the superman movies in my estimation
1: although yeah. I, I think it's finally starting to show its age mm, um i just watched i didn't it think recently. so just a few years ago yeah. but I, I think it is now
2: I mean, there, there's there's stuff like, you know, the pimp who goes, that's a bad outfit, you know, and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, it, it's You know, but it, it's held up pretty well. Certainly a lot better than Superman 2.
0: Oh, yeah, Superman 2. Is starting was, to age a lot. oh Superman 2, last time I watched it, had aged terribly, where I remember thinking, oh, you know, yeah, it's not as good as the first one, but it's okay. And then I watched it right after I watched the first one, and I thought, wow, the the the, the campiness, the special effects, just everything about that film is just not holding up now. Have either of you seen, and we're going to get off Superman here in a minute, but have either of you seen the Richard Donner cut? of Yes,
1: I own it. It's great.
0: It is pretty good. Uh, There are obviously some issues because he had to use uh, um, test screenings and stuff to get it to be the cut that he intended it to be. But it is a far better film, Uh, although I even then have some issues and I wonder how much he had to fudge, you know, because he just didn't have the footage that he needed to make it exactly the way he wanted it to be you know, the whole going back in time again thing. Come on. But, um, you know, overall a far better cut of Superman two was, was Richard Donner's original vision of the film. far better film. Sure.
1: Yeah. I'll give it to you. Yep. Uh, speaking of the, uh, superhero campiness, the, I, uh, I can't wait to see how you're going to tie this one in. The the, bad, the the Batman '60s live action show is coming to Blu-ray.
0: Oh, you just skipped right over one. That's oh, okay. We'll come. We'll come back. back to it. So the Batman '1960s <laughs> that, that is a better order. You're right. Um, so the, the '1960s Blu-ray remastered uh, trailer. This, um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Jeff. Were are you going to? Well, I'm something?
1: really excited about this. This is uh, just long overdue. I think that a lot of the 60 shows are worth revisiting and watching with a family and introducing the kids to, you know, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show, for one, I really have enjoyed that, and the kids seem to like it too, even though they're pretty young. And I've been waiting for this series in particular to make it to Blu-ray, and I'm really happy to see that they're doing something special to make it actually worth its while, because I was just thinking about this earlier when I saw this story. I was a little bit disappointed, because when I heard, you know... They're just now getting around to the Blu-ray edition. I figured that it was just going to be the standard definition produced to Blu-ray, and they might touch up the graphics or something and throw on some bonus features. But like y'all two were pointing out, they can actually remaster this thing and give it genuine HD quality. And I did not realize that
0: yeah because and th- th- this is the issue a lot of these old um fi- uh, tv shows were actually filmed on actual film uh, i'm sure mm-hmm. that i this show was probably shot on 60 millimeter film because that was the uh the film of the day that they used in tv shows they went on later to go to 35 some shows went on to 35 millimeter film such as star trek the next generation was all shot on 35 millimeter and it looks absolutely beautiful in hd but even the original series of star trek was shot on 60 millimeter and they remastered it to great effect uh, all the uh live action shows shots in that show look fantastic you would i mean because if you like like me if you owned the original dvd transfers of the of the uh, old standard definition star trek show um it it looked pretty crummy
1: if i had to choose between the original star trek show or the original batman show it would be (laughs) batman any day
0: if you say so i'm I'm not Mm. gonna go there uh but i will say that this this show is extremely campy and corny and pow and zap and good gravy batman you know but but i think it would be fun to revisit the show with my
1: that's the thing no one tries to take that show seriously no it's not at all way too many people try to fool themselves into believing that they can take star trek first generation seriously uh the original
2: series joe I, i can can okay. yeah but anyway uh, um, go ahead, Clark. I, I will say uh, to to the Batman's credit uh, a, a lot of people sort of look back at the show and they're like oh it's so cheesy and it's so stupid and so on and so forth what I don't think a lot of people realize is that the show is very much in on the joke it's a very self-aware oh, yeah. comedy for sure exactly yeah. and uh, it, it really is a lot of fun if you approach it as a comedy and as a satire of sort of superhero tropes it's it's really got a lot of fun stuff a little goes a long way. I think it's, <laughs> yes. it's a hard show to marathon. No, no, no. <laughs> but, I,
0: I couldn't watch more than an episode a week, I think, at the most. Uh, yeah.
2: But it is fun. And, uh, you know, if if this gets down to the right price point at some time, I may pick it up because I I would like to revisit some of these.
0: Yeah. And I am, I am excited to see some of these good old shows being remastered in this way. And, and like I, you know, I, I just, I I haven't actually seen it since it was on, I don't know, I think I saw it on the family channel and reruns when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I, I would be happy to reintroduce this. My, my kids love, um, and we have on DVD, the old family channel Zorro, and they love that, and that's—I mean, like I can let them watch that and not be worried. That, what are they watching, you know? And i, I feel mm-hmm. the same way about this show. So, uh, you know, good old Caesar Romero, Bert, uh, Bert Ward, Adam West, uh, yeah, I think it's good stuff.
2: I remember mm-hmm. when I was a kid, my favorite Batman villain was Vincent Price's Egghead, <laughs> <laughs> just a ridiculous and fun guy. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see this. Um, in in a, in a you know cheesy, campy, whatever, but it'll it'll be fun. Hmm. all right one more item of interest before we move on to our review this week and that is that enchanted 2 is on the way and i'm i'm actually pretty excited to hear this i i hope they can do it justice i guys i really really love the first enchanted that was a you feel like they
1: just got lucky with it though
0: i wonder i don't know what do you think clark
2: I, I really like the First Enchanted, too. and no, I, I think it is a really just sort of lovingly crafted film. Um, my only real problem with it was I thought the Patrick Dempsey character was a little too dull. I agree. But yeah, it, it's a really wonderful movie. Uh, far surpassed my expectations, certainly. Yes. And uh, I certainly hope that they'll bring the same level of quality to the sequel. I, I think there's some potential there, actually.
0: I did feel a little bit bad for James Marsden because he never gets the
2: girl. <laughs> I, I did, but it, at least his solace was that he was uh, kind of too dumb to realize how badly he missed out. So. <laughs> it's
0: true. Yeah. But I mean, think about like Superman returns. He, he you know, I, I guess technically he had the girl, but then Superman's back, and this, this is superman's girl right and then you've got the x-men franchise and and spoiler alert for the x-men franchise where he ultimately he just sort of dies because you know and he's killed by his own girlfriend and and she was always you know logan was always in the way and Mm -hmm. i don't know he just never gets the girl
2: (laughs) yeah i I will admit that i was rooting for him and enchanted (laughs) i
1: I don't know if i was but um (laughs) i am happy though that disney is taking this franchise to new heights though because the first film was you know considered sort of uh you know out there as a, a standalone movie and it, I, I i guess the the most apparent way i know this or realize this is because ella uh it, it, that's the name of the princess right giselle you're thinking Giselle's of the wrong i think of
0: ella yeah. enchanted a completely right. different movie
1: <laughs> yeah i know i know better uh, okay so giselle is not among the disney princesses no. and i don't know why the heck not but she's not considered among the famous Disney princesses. If you go looking for a, uh, a toy for your daughter, a doll or something at the Disney store, they won't have Giselle represented anywhere, anytime.
0: Well, I mean, this film, um, you know, continues a trend of great Amy Adams films. Um, I'm trying to think. It feels like there was a movie somewhere that I did not necessarily care for with her in it, but I'm not seeing it. So maybe I'm thinking of something. Man else. of Steel uh yes that was it i'm sorry there you go man of steel she she was fine it's just the movie around her was bad
2: yeah i mean um, but amy adams is always reliable she's
0: she is a fantastic actress uh even in movies that i i felt like were uh receiving way too much praise for their own good such as american hustle i i had no problem at all with her part in the film yeah um and and yeah i uh boy i i could not i cannot wait for enchanted 2 i, I hope that they can catch lightning in a bottle yet again hmm yeah all right guys shall we move on to our review of earth to echo
1: yes last our whole lives we've been nobodies invisible
0: the good kids well, not anymore <laughs> what <are you> doing? <laughs> a couple of seconds ago our phones went crazy whoa it buffed did you see that it's a map we don't know where it goes Somewhere out in the desert. It's 20 miles
2: away. We're, no, we're, we're not. We're not gonna go. Cameras are gonna be on nonstop. Don't tell anyone, Munch. Don't you bail out on
0: us now? I'll go.
1: I think we have enough here to talk about, especially because we got Clark. I'm really excited to hear uh, his thoughts, uh, because I know you're um, a very big Steven Spielberg fan, Clark, and I, I think that everyone here knows and understands before we get started that this is just a great big. Uh, what do you want to call it? I I don't want to call it parody. Homage? Homage. To mm. Spielberg film work.
2: <laughs> but uh, not, uh, not Homage might be a little generous. Yes, um, I think that is generous. <laughs> yeah that might be more accurate.
0: (laughs) a a, a stab at um this is a preview of things to come as we get into this review this film was released on july the 2nd 2014 it had a budget of 13 million wait is that right that can't be right chad no that's
2: right that's the figure i've heard too okay
0: 13 okay okay, yeah 13 (laughs) million uh opening weekend uh 8 million, 8.3 million. Uh, worldwide growth so far is 14.8 million. Rotten Tomatoes uh, Critical Acclaim says that Earth Echo doesn't do itself any favors by beggaring comparison to ET. But for younger viewers, it should prove a reasonably entertaining diversion. The director was Dave Green. Writers Henry, uh, the writer was Henry Gayden. Uh, and it stars uh, Theo Helm, Helm uh, Brian Astro Bradley, uh, Reese Hartwig, Ella, uh, we talked about how to pronounce this, and I don't remember, Wallestet um and uh jason gray stanford a composer was joseph trapanese or trapanese i'm not sure which uh and and uh joe since you're new here you're back why don't you uh tell us about this story
1: sure okay so earth to echo is the youtube-like documentary by tuck a teenage camera enthusiast he and his two best friends munch and alex are about to relocate in part ways because of a mysterious interstate project that will tear down their town. When their smartphones seemingly go on the fritz and display bizarre coordinates in the desert, the boys decide to spend their last night together following these mysterious directions to see if there is a good adventure to be found in them. The maps on their devices lead them to the discovery of a robotic alien in need of their help along the way the boys encounter difficulty from government agents that wish to exploit the alien for science
0: all right guys let's dive in
1: did i say exploit or some other i
2: think i said exploit i heard exploit did you hear exploit clark Uh, i believe that's what it was okay
1: my brain sometimes substitutes the words and so i need to always ignore what my brain has to say
0: uh, so I have to get something out of the way I don't really like E.T. at least my memory of it. <laughs> um, and is it, I know I knew this is the reaction I was going to get from you Joe and I know Clark is grimacing over there and, and he's about to lay something pithy on me but <laughs> as a child uh, as a young you know child and, and growing up with the movie E.T. I, I really didn't care for it and and I would like to revisit it because I feel like as an adult I'm uh, that may change but I have not seen it since I was like what eight or nine and I just didn't like it. Um, and, and this film, obviously, it, it, uh, as you said, Clark, it's it's really more theft. It's it's almost like a copy and paste job. And they changed a few jots and tittles to avoid the legal uh, ramifications. Um, and, and they kind of modernized, I suppose you would say. But uh, In
1: this case, though, the filmmakers don't mind saying that they're blatantly stealing. They admit that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we grew up with E.T., and that was a fun film, and we just wanted to give kids today that same experience well, that we had.
0: Well, let me quote uh, from Andrew Panay, uh, who said, I grew up watching the Goonies stand, uh, stand by me. Don't you think it's weird that our generation hasn't had a Goonies to talk to you? I thought it was about time you, you kids had the same experience us adults had.
1: Clark. I don't know, man. Wasn't Super 8 trying to do that for us? <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, and I I think that there are movies which certainly uh, can effectively pay tribute to uh, the movies the filmmakers loved growing up and sort of pay homage to that genre while still doing their own thing. I think Super 8 did that. I think Monster House is another movie sort of in this category that did that. Um, But – yeah, Earth to Echo is not really paying homage so much as just blatantly stealing a lot of familiar story beats. Again, mostly not from the Goonies and Stand By Me, but from E.T., as people have mentioned.
0: Yeah, it's, it's most and, blatantly E.T.
2: Yeah, and it, it, it's really kind of shameless. There isn't a single moment in this movie that doesn't feel entirely predictable because we've seen this before we we know how this goes and the the movie just doesn't really bring enough of its own personality to the table
0: well well, let me lay some story some 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 particulars on you and see if you can tell which film i'm talking about it involves pre-adolescents who think they're much too old for their own good parents with little to no clue what's going on in their children's lives an extraterrestrial trying to find his way home uh, a menacing u.s government i mean which film are we talking about here (laughs)
2: yeah it's it's toss-up tj going back to your comments on et i will admit when i was a kid uh my first reaction to et and i saw it when i was very young was just distress Mm. um because when i saw what happened to et near the end of the film um it really kind of traumatized me i cried watching that movie and it wasn't so much like i was so moved by this crying i was just like i was sad crying um Then when I returned to it when I was a lot older, I I really kind of fell in love with it. And, um, yeah, I I, I do love that movie. And I do think, you know, since you saw it when you were young, if you give it another chance and revisit it sometime, you might be surprised by by what a fine film it is. Just some... Lovely craftsmanship and some really beautiful moments. A great John Williams score.
0: Yeah, I think I would. Um, and and it, it's kind of like this this whole thing of of looking at movies that I liked as a kid, um, where I I, I like them then and I hate them now. Uh, <clears throat> Never-ending story. <clears throat> um, <laughs> uh, and then there's movies that I haven't liked as a as a kid that I've revisited. That hey, that was a good movie. So it's definitely kind of an inverting of my of my tastes as a young child. Yeah. So I, I feel that's why I say I feel like I might like it now. Um, and I just, I just have like bad feelings left over because I didn't like it then, um, yeah. So th- this film, and, and I think uh, you were the one that said. I don't know if I use this in my review. Uh, I I did a little bit borrow from you in what you said <laughs> on, on when I when I quoted uh, Andrew Panay. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I did use the term copy and paste. Look at that. Look at me plagiarizing, copying and pasting, plagiarizing. <laughs> the Irony. <teacher>. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you made the same observations, and uh, it, it, that was my overall. Before I read your review, that was my overwhelming filming, was like, feeling is like this. This thing really is E. T. Light. Yeah. Um yeah and i and to some extent like i would feel more comfortable with my kids watching this film than i would ET but the story beats are the same
2: it it really is uh just remarkably it it it's weird how effective ET is as a film and this sort of takes the same beats but can't recapture even a tiny sliver of the emotional impact of that movie yeah uh, it just feels so so phoned in and cheap i don't know there wasn't a single moment in Earth to Echo that really kind of resonated with me or made me feel something it was only 89 minutes long but i kept checking my watch like when is this going to be over
0: it was 89 minutes and felt like you know two and a half hours that that, that's not a good sign i I, you know i went into the film a little early i slid straight out of work and slid into the seat right at the showtime and um i expected it to be dark when i got out and it was still light um so that that, it was not that long and yet it felt long
1: yeah yeah you know, I don't know what we really expected from Dave Green. Have you, either of y'all ever heard of him? Know anything about his background as I a director? Not. No. Okay, I, I just, I've been looking into him. Uh, he's not done very much. Uh, the, the one other highlight on IMDb is a film he made in 2009 called Meltdown. Here is a, a summary of Meltdown. Last night's leftovers are presented with a cold reality. What? A massive ice block has invaded the refrigerator and is swallowing the food one item at a time. Oh my god. In an epic struggle for their survival, spaghetti, ham sandwich, and celery embark on a journey to the refrigerator's temperature control knob.
0: Uh yeah. <laughs> how did well, you how did you do that with a straight face? Or I couldn't see your face, so maybe it wasn't.
2: In fairness, uh, I will say I'm looking at IMDb and Meltdown is a six minute short. So maybe that premise can sustain itself a little better. Over but even so, time. the guy like has
1: heart. He doesn't have a, a film, you know, cr- you know, filmography. It's well, it's yeah, nonexistent.
2: I mean, I, I think if you look back at his <sighs> stuff, it's too really it is really too early to tell. There there are certainly filmmakers who have made their first feature and really knocked it out of the park and impressed everybody and gone on to bigger and better things. But um, yeah, this isn't one of them. This feels very much like uh, kind of work for hire sort of job without yeah. any real distinctive qualities. Uh, right. It's telling that uh, on his IMDb page, you know, they have different director trademarks enlisted and stuff. Uh, his trademark it just says ham sandwich. I don't know. I don't know. What. <laughs> so I'm assuming that in both Meltdown and Earth to Echo, at some point, there is a ham sandwich.
0: All mm. right. Well, I do want to talk about. I mean, th- this film is not completely devoid of of uh, things that you know are are praiseworthy. Um, right. And, and, and I feel like there's a couple of points we can touch on before we really get into lambasting this this film. Uh, and for me, one of those points is that I actually appreciated that this film was full of fresh faces. Yes, I had some issues with one of the actors. We'll get to that. But but a couple of the actors, the young actors, I thought, did a really great job. Um, I thought that uh, Theo Helm was was pretty good as Alex and uh, Ella Walla um, I thought that, again, I have script issues with her, but I thought that her performance was fine. And I, I enjoy seeing fresh faces in a film. So that I, I think that that is a quality that, that actually I found uh, to, to work in the film's favor.
1: I would basically agree with you there, TJ. I don't know what to make of the girl personally, although I think that the actress did a good job nailing her part. Uh, the character had some weak points because she's introduced late in the well, film. Sure. And yeah, she does, doesn't as I really said, she was just sort of
0: thrown in there.
1: Yeah, it seemed like they had to have a girl for having a girl's sake. Exactly. And, uh, they did a lot to try and make her belong to the film. But at the same time, it felt like by the time you brought her character in, she didn't have a great association with our, uh, the boys. So it was, uh, it was stilted. And I just didn't feel like she, as a character, belonged and that she would make the choices that she did. I wasn't convinced. So, again, it has felt like she was written in because everyone said that there has to be a girl in this film. Uh, But, yeah, go ahead, Clark.
2: I was going to say, and she has a slightly promising introduction, too, when the the boys have broken into her house. And you can see this is kind of the spoiled, rich girl who the boys assume is probably too good to hang out with them or she'll feel that way. Right. And, you know, there's some interesting sort of tension there that I thought the film would explore, but they really don't. She just kind of joins up and... Tags along and never really does anything of interest from there.
0: Yeah, they had a great uh, setup, and then they never paid it off. Yeah. Yeah. They teed that ball up right there on the tee, and then there was a swing, and they weren't even swinging at the right tee, (laughs) 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 is what it is, as it turns out. Um. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I, I completely agree from that angle. But I thought that that the actress herself was fine, and um, sure, yeah. I really enjoyed both of our. I would I would say actually uh, Teo Halm and was our lead. Uh, I know that that the film is about Tuck doing the filming, but I would, in my opinion, Teo Halm is the. I'm, I don't know if I'm H A L M. I guess that's right. So yeah. yeah, I I think that he did a fantastic job as the lead in the film. I I will say that.
1: The thing about his part is Alex was that it's first to think he's just going to play a very minor role. Yeah. But then when it comes to a head, he's right at the center of the climax. And it, it was, uh, interesting because I, I think that they stressed the point throughout the film that every, all these, uh, boys felt like the outsiders and Alex was the most outsider of them all. Yeah. So if, uh, if you think about it, Tuck is this um, showman, and early on, he is trying to carry everything on the film. Uh, you know, he, he's the one making the humor of it all. He's to try, trying to make it interesting and add some jazz to it. And what happens is the more that Alex's role and the alien's role become prominent to the story there's less and less tucks machismo and less and less of his just uh you know gleeful behavior and uh the his enjoyment of the of the ride of it all and uh, even though you really appreciated tuck there in the first portion you begin to really appreciate how his character becomes less important to the plot while alex's importance swells and may, it gives it some grandeur
2: yeah I, i'm Gonna offer a little counterpoint here, disagree with that. Um, I thought Tuck was a, the most compelling of the three guys, and I, I thought would have made a, a, a pretty solid lead, but the movie kind of dropped interest in him around the halfway point. Alex, uh, T.O. Helm did a fine job with the material he was given, but if there's one thing that movies have taught us over the years, it's that. The least interesting person gets to be the hero more often than not, and I think that's the case here. I'm not talking about the the actual performances, but Alex doesn't really have any real defining traits or anything that makes him particularly compelling, so naturally he gets to be at the center, while Tuck and Munch, both of whom have more specific personality types, are kind of shoved off to the side. Um,
1: yeah, I, I can see that. I, well. I,
2: I, I, I didn't care for him that much. The character, again, young Mister Hallam did.
0: Fine. Well, like, I guess um, even though I've never been in in the situation by any means, I guess it kind of resonated with me, or I connected with it. That here is this uh, kid who is a foster kid who's been you know through the foster system and had many different homes and whatever, and he comes to the point where no, he's not leaving the alien behind you know he's gonna make it right because nobody's ever done that very well for him i I don't know i I felt like that kind of resonated with me
2: i feel like it's it's sort of the the same thing with the girl like they introduce a seed of an idea there and then they kind of leave it they don't really do enough with it and uh, you know i i feel like maybe i can see you drawing that point but i feel like you kind of have to project a little bit Mm. to get there that that the movie itself doesn't really do enough to make that resonate
1: Mm. okay i mean i I think that's valid one, this is just, thing,
2: you know, one man's vote.
1: Well, there is one thing we can all be very grateful for, and that's that it wasn't Transformers 4.
0: This is true. This is an element in the film's favor. <laughs> I completely agree. I, I like this film better than Transformers, for sure. Hmm. Um, Good.
2: I'm going to play devil's advocate again and <laughs> say that <laughs> at least Transformers 4 had a few moments that surprised me. Oh. <laughs> uh, the, the, I it's a very say- apples and oranges comparison. I mean, this is a different kind of thing. It's aimed at young kids. Yes. It's a sweet little movie, but uh, oh man, this movie was boring. And Transformers was boring too. But this was really, really boring. Okay, um, I, yeah. I make an interesting oh.
1: point there, though, that it was for you know the sweet little kids audience crowd, and that there was some families and grandparents that were watching it with in the same audience I was in. Sure. And the but the whole film, all I could see was that the alien himself was representative of a baby Wally. Like that's what I I thought of like cute little kitten pictures on, you know, you know, GIF related websites and Facebook. And that's just what I saw in our alien here. Like I found it interesting that part of me wanted to like this alien, but I just didn't find anything especially attractive about him in the long run.
0: I don't completely disagree with you, but at the same time I did find him somewhat adorable and I felt that that worked in the film's favor.
1: Um, that's that's I, what I'm saying. He's baby Wally. Yeah. Of course he's adorable. He
0: didn't make much sense as a character or the things that he could and couldn't do. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and he had not not a lot to do and he was not on screen a lot, which is probably a function of the budget. But I did find that when he was on screen, uh, it was it was cute and adorable and, and in that way... I, that, that's the a- aspect of it that I like better than E.T., because E.T. was not really cute and adorable.
2: But, but E.T. had a personality. E.T. True. was a character that, you know, really had some dimension. And really all there is to Echo is that, well, he's cute, but that's about it. I mean there there's you know yeah. other than that he's just kind of a plot device who bleeps or does something magical when the script needs him to yes, but true. there's nothing else to him. I mean that's just he looks like a nice little happy meal toy.
0: Okay. My last um my last thing in the film's favor that I will I know you will also disagree with uh, because you already have is that I did actually connect a couple of times emotionally with the film. There were a, a couple of times that I thought, oh, well, you know, it's it's a little bit heavy here. Uh, and and, and it, it, I thought that, that that did work in the film's favor. Again, I'm not really, you know, obviously based on my star rating, which you guys have already seen if you read my review, I'm not really defending the film, I'm just saying that I felt like the film did have a couple of elements that worked in its favor.
2: Mm. So I will say, since, since we're still on the subject of likes, there is one thing. Scene, I guess, kind of two scenes that I did like a lot. Um, One was towards the very beginning, uh, and that's when Tuck is giving sort of an inspirational speech over video chat to the two other guys. And yeah, uh, in an effort in an effort to uh, sort of boost the power of his words, he opens up, I, I think it was iTunes, yes. and he cranks up the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves soundtrack <laughs> to just sort of give that extra motivational touch. And I, I love that. It's a great little character touch. I love that he would have that at his disposal to sort of help him out during that particular moment. And then I love, too, uh, in a moment that sort of follows up on that, uh, a scene shortly after where he's riding his bike down the road. And he's sort of humming his own heroic theme music as he goes, this dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, and it's yes. not really a discernible melody, but uh, it's a great little uh, thing suggesting this whole other life as this kind of film music nerd, which makes sense given that he's, you know, an aspiring documentary filmmaker and so on and so forth. That's the kind of thing that I really wish the movie had done more of, um, but there was very little of it other than that.
0: Yep, yep, I completely agree on on both, both counts. Hmm. Joe, do you have anything else before we dive into our dislikes?
1: Really, yeah. Do, really, one thing. In. Sure, one thing that I did like about the film in the undertones, the undercurrents, if you will, was that it felt sort of like a children's story. It's going to be riddled with mistakes. There's um, there are plot holes. There's things that don't make sense, of course, but it's feel good, and it's a kind of feel good movie that I I I enjoy. Um, Not as much as I would like to have. I've seen much better examples of this. But where, when it's all said and done, it it reminds me of a storybook. It reminds me of something I would read to my son. Only because it's so... um, because it's so gritty in a sense, because it's showing the real world and because it's showing, um, the nightlife and there's bar scenes and because they're, they're showing the dark side of the government and stuff like that. It doesn't feel like a storybook, but when it took the moment to enjoy the simple things, like the relationships between the kids and how the, the, the boy-girl relationships and the awkwardness that uh, teenagers and young teens have. And when they, they showed the delight they have to connect with the alien and uh, relate to his world and care about his needs, there's that storybook quality, that, that wonder you get. And um, though it wasn't very potent in this film, I experienced it. And that was something that makes me always a little happy. Like uh, I got that from Pixar films when I was growing up as a kid. And uh, so even though this is a a, a live action film, that's by no means, in my opinion, a great film because much, many other films have done it better for me. I still got that here and uh, it was something I liked. And I, I would say, um it's it's always something i enjoy no matter what the film it is that i'm picking up on it
0: there you go clark do you have any remaining good good vibes to send for this film no all right well let's uh let's flay this thing guys
1: thank you okay what the heck man at the end spoiler alert um, ring the bell, whatever. Okay. Uh, it, there's a, a fantastic situation where there is a, a spaceship underground, which we can only imagine is already uh, a whole. It is already combined underground. We don't get to see it this way, but it is supposed that that's the way it is because we get to go into the hull of the ship because Alex takes the alien right into its working yeah, parts.
0: Yeah, I will agree with you. The ship looked to be completely put together under that thing.
1: And, and, and there was an illusion that this was going to happen earlier on in the film. There's a situation where in order to prevent a vehicular accident, uh, the alien is able to blow apart an animated space every last piece of a semi-truck and move the, all of its parts around the kid's van and recombine them so that it comes to a halt behind their van on the road. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, wow, baby Wally's got some skills there, man. But then later on, there's this ship, almost the size of you know, I don't know what, maybe six uh, blocks. You know, there's you, know, you could fit many suburban houses inside the size of the spaceship well, it was under the whole neighborhood. It's under the entire subdivision. Yeah. It's the size of the subdivision and all of its parts split to pieces and work their way up through the ground and through the sewer grates and right which, up through w- the roots,
0: which would not leave a big gaping hole in the, you know, where all the houses had fallen to or anything like that.
1: No, no, no. And then they reassemble up in the air again. And, uh,
2: Seemingly without <sighs> doing much damage to the neighborhood okay, with everything so, rising. So, yeah, so why so. was it
1: necessary to put the little alien into his well, captain's this chair? Is, this is
0: probably my primary complaint with the film, Joe, is that the, the powers of this alien are extremely inconsistent. What did he need the kids for? He seemed to be able to do everything himself, and it just, none of it made any sense. Didn't make any sense at
1: all. Well, I will buy it that he's able to do this with his huge space vessel. But uh, what I don't buy is that he first had to be sitting in the captain's chair of his spaceship before he disassembled all the parts of his spaceship and recombined them outside of you know above ground. Like, why is it that he had to be sitting in the captain's chair to turn it all on before he broke it all to pieces yeah, to reassemble?
2: And, and again, Echo uh, – uh, as you've said, doesn't really make much sense as a character. And I, I really don't think they even bother to consider him as a character. No. They're only considering the sort of emotional journey the kids are taking. Echo is whatever the filmmakers need him to be at any given moment to yep. get the plot from point A to point B. And that's a huge failing of a movie that's called Earth to Echo.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I completely agree. The thing is, like, the, the point that they were trying to make uh, with the emotional journey the kids were on didn't, like, have any resonance. It didn't connect. Like, I, I, I felt like they kept trying to force it to be that, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, that was well, the, you, you, Stop trying to force this. This is not what the film's about.
2: Well, and, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, there there are two big montages uh, which sort of look back at all the scenes from the past 89 minutes. Yeah. And all the wonderful things that have happened, and, it, you know... Since none of those really made much of an impact on us, the emotional impact of those montages is... Completely lost. I mean, it's a cheesy sort of tactic to begin with, but it really doesn't work if the stuff you're reminiscing about isn't really worth reminiscing about.
0: Right, and this is where I feel like the movie really took a downward turn. Like I, I felt like okay, it was kind of a, a blah mm-hmm. movie, but then it tried to do this thing where it was like, oh, we went on this amazing journey together. Yeah. And look at the look <laughs> yes. at the things that we did, and look at all the friendship, the things that we got, <laughs> the connection, and 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 oh, this the life that we lived in that night, and just it just thought highly of itself and that really just brought the movie crashing down just,
2: <laughs> it, yeah, and, you it, know th- there's a decision that the kids make uh, during this stretch of the movie too and i, I guess this is sort of kind of a spoiler but not really um there's a decision the kids make which really bothered me which is that uh, after this adventure is all said and done they basically agree okay this was a magical thing that happened to us And we're not going to tell anybody about it. We're just going to remember this special adventure that we had all for ourselves. And you've just learned information that will change uh, the universe as we know it. Extraordinarily important stuff. And you're not doing it to protect Echo anymore because he's already gone. Far out of reach of any of the humans who could hurt him. So you're just selfishly hiding this extraordinary knowledge uh, just because it's your special thing. And also... I don't buy, even though they decided that, I don't buy that they would actually be able to hide you, you that. You really I think,
0: that, think Munch could keep his mouth shut?
2: <laughs> <laughs> sure. and I mean, there was too much visual evidence. Surely there was more than just that one sort of crazy lady who saw what happened uh, or, or satellites that would have picked up something. Too much evidence in the modern world would have been accumulated for them to just sort of uh, –
0: well, and, and hide
2: this forever. And where
0: did the, the the evil government men go that were chasing them? Right up into the point where all of a sudden it was time for Echo to leave, and now all of a sudden they're missing in action. They're nowhere to yeah, be found.
2: They, they just gave up and drove away. We see their vans driving off at the end. Yeah, but that's the extent was, of it.
0: In the real world, they they would have caught them immediately and caught and confiscated all the footage, and and then this is not a secret anymore.
2: I mean, the, the, the government villains barely had any motivation whatsoever in None. the film. They just sort of showed up to be evil and and never really even bothered to explain what the purpose of their experiments with Echo was or what no. exactly they were trying to do or how they learned any of this. They're just bad guys who hang around being bad.
0: They wear the black hats. That's what makes them bad. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Were they? What's that?
1: Were they wearing black hats? It's, it's a metaphor, Joe. Right. I know these things I are know, sometimes lost on they, you, but... They... <laughs> They might as well have been. I
0: know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, actually, I meant to make a point uh, when you were talking about the ship uh, being underground and stuff. I want to know how it even got down there. Because they talk about how they shot the ship down. But, like, how did it get there? If they shot the ship down, what is it doing under the entire neighborhood? Like, it should be crashed somewhere.
1: I got the impression they were saying that they caused uh, Echo to crash land when he was coming to try and find that big ship. That's not that, what they were what saying. That's what I f- maybe got so. the impression
2: of, I, too. That they shot Echo down. I but guess it I still doesn't that.
1: make a lot of sense it because does. how did the, how the original How long has that ship been, ship been in under the first there?
2: Place? Clearly. Yeah. A long time, or one of the neighbors would have noticed, uh, you know, yeah, they built a neighborhood in their yard, yeah. Yeah.
1: Nobody nobody ever used a metal detector over the neighborhood at all, like nobody saw that.
0: Joe, it's space metal, it's it's an element we haven't discovered yet, so it was undetectable.
1: But see, that's the thing is going back to Echo's powers, he seems to be able to manipulate metal like magneto, yes, and electricity like, um what was that? Uh, Electro from amazing Spider-Man Two. So like he can manipulate information on computers and uh, make communications to the kids. So he can use visual information and override software. And then he's also able to suspend any kind of alloy, but it seems like effortlessly and without control. So yes, he's supposed to be this cute little innocent uh, alien, but then there was several times that while he's manipulating the objects, he nearly kills people. Yeah. Because totally. he's throwing around parts in a pawn shop or in the bar when there are people around, including the the kids, which he's he's said he likes. But he's throwing around the metal parts at the speed of a bullet.
2: And, you know, another another maddening thing here, too. Uh, early on, the kids communicate with Echo with these series of beeps. He does uh, one beep for yes and two beeps for no. And they're able to kind of take a 20 questions approach to figuring out what exactly he's up to. Yeah. But after that initial conversation, they pretty much stop talking to him. <laughs> they really uh, give up the whole 20 questions routine and don't really ask Echo much about what he's doing or what he wants to do anymore. Yeah. Uh, I guess they figured they had learned everything they wanted to learn and didn't care to know more. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense.
1: I yeah. Had... Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just thinking, like, going back to things we've already highlighted, it seems to me like the filmmakers didn't care to make the film more than an echo.
0: You just just stop it there, Joe. The filmmakers didn't care.
1: (laughs) But they, no, no, like, they they cared about something. All they cared about was echoing E.T., that's what they were striving to do. When they met that mark, they said, okay, we can stop here. We don't have to think any harder. Uh, All we wanted to do was give our children a lighthearted experience that reminded us of the great work that Spielberg did long ago. And it cheapens his work. It cheapens other filmmakers' work.
0: I don't know if it cheapens other filmmakers' work as much as it cheapens this work.
2: Yeah, I don't think it cheapens Uh, E.T. at all. I think E.T. is going to hold up long after people have forgotten about Earth to uh, Echo. uh, But uh, I I, I will uh, say that… One of the comments I've seen from critics and seemingly every other review of this film is, well, it's not very good, but young children are going to like it, which is the sort of disclaimer that comes along with a lot of movies like this. And I want to say that that's not a compliment because young children have no taste. (laughs) (laughs) Young young children will sit and watch and enjoy pretty much anything that's colorful enough for 90 minutes. You know, Uh, it's, it's very easy to please them. And so I think you do have kind of a a basic sort of obligation as a filmmaker to at least on some level make a movie that's going to resonate with the viewers of any age. Obviously, there there are some movies that are geared more at younger viewers than older ones, and that's perfectly fine. But I think it's entirely possible to do that without being lazy.
0: Well, if you want to look at a good example of that, look at Pixar where sure. they they've made films that the, ch- that the kids love there's not a pixar film out there that my kids don't love but you know mm-hmm. what i love them too because P- pixar is actually contributing to the artistic um uh, uh community They they actually have artistic value and story value and 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 this film kind of fails on that level in a very big way
1: yeah but uh but I, i'm sorry clark that you, uh, you said it sounds like uh I, I maybe didn't word that right, but what I was trying to say wasn't that literally this films how how Trump's ET, but that because the filmmakers are kidding themselves to say, oh, we wanted to make a modern ET. When we watch this, and if they're calling this the standard. They're bringing down E.T. They're saying, oh, well, you know, we basically just did the same thing. We just did it for today's audience. And if you don't like our film, it's because, you know, maybe you just never liked E.T. in the first place. But really, they're cheapening the value of other better stories. You're
0: saying from their perspective, they are.
1: Yeah, from their perspective. Like, Spielberg did a great job with that film, and they think that they have matched it.
2: Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's really just, you know... A failure to understand why E.T. worked exactly. Exactly. Well, let's start with the
0: fact that E.T. was not trying to do what this film's trying to do, which is recreate something else. It was, hey, we have this really cool thing and this really cool concept and idea. Let's do that.
2: Yeah, and I mean, the writer of E.T., I believe her name was Melissa Matheson. Uh, You know, that was a story that really came from her heart. It was a very personal, passionate story that she thought would resonate with kids. Uh, And it's one that sort of she formulated on her own. She wasn't looking back at, well, uh, which children's movie can I sort of try to mimic here to sort of duplicate those emotional reactions that kids had to that. She was really, you know, coming up with something on her own that she thought kids would respond to. And this movie seemingly doesn't have an original thought in its head. It's all drawing from older stuff that they liked when they were young. There Uh, you go. That's uh, what I was saying. But there's there's nothing new here. There's nothing that (laughs) <laughs> should, should inspire parents to let their kids watch earth taco over any of these other movies. Yeah,
0: I agree. I want to talk about uh, two, two more things. And, and obviously if you guys have other things, we'll talk about those too. But the the biggest, second biggest complaint that I have with this film is that it's a found, it's another found footage film that would have greatly benefited from not being a found footage film. Um, I, I get so tired of this trope where, where it's, it's like, oh, it's, it's more realistic because it's this, you know, this found like, like this kid is doing this documentary and oh, isn't that cool. And, and, you know, it, it, it's a couple of things. One, it's a cover for the low budget. Yes. It's just, it, that's all it is. It's a cover for the low budget. And, and two, it doesn't really work as a storytelling device because it doesn't follow its own rules. like wh- why do we get to see from echo's perspective sometimes instead of from from a camera perspective sometimes the camera's perspective we're seeing from doesn't make any sense um, and, and, and when is the last time you saw a 12 year old boy make a documentary? And if he did, would you expect it to look this good because it does look good. it's at a really high resolution. it's not sh- you know it's not like overly shaky. the camera is not placed in strange places. like it's pr- placed very strategically. It just doesn't work. It does not work, guys.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. It's it's nonsensical. And, you know, even though the movie looks better than it would if it were shot by an actual 12-year-old with an actual 12-year-old's camera, uh, it, it still isn't a great-looking movie. Uh, the cinematography is pretty Lame. chaotic at times. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. sometimes there's really no explaining why exactly the camera decides to land where it lands. Yeah. But, uh yeah, it's a cheap gimmick, and it's one that rarely works. Most found footage movies feel pretty artificial to me. There are a few instances, even though I don't like the movies, I think the Paranormal Activity movies sort of kind of justify their premise with the sort of home security camera. Yeah. Uh, and they stick to that. They look like garbage, but they, at least they stick to their premise. Uh, and then on the other hand, you've got, uh, t- to me, the best found footage film to date is Chronicle. Uh, the the superhero film from, I think, two or three years ago. Uh And one of the reasons that I actually liked that movie is I thought it had a great sort of gimmick at its core, which was uh, they can use their superpowers to provide great cinematography, which is a really clever touch. Uh, That that movie actually looks (laughs) a lot better than most of those movies do because they're like, oh, well, he's controlling the camera with his superpowers, and he can make it do whatever he wants so he can get all these great shots. So... (laughs) yeah I, I bought that and and they were pretty consistent with it but most of the time it does feel sloppy and messy and wildly inconsistent as it does here
0: yeah and and I you know I this this basically combines the worst of the first person storytelling format which I don't particularly like I mean so it combines it with a terrible cinematic experience one of the reasons I don't like the first person storytelling format is it's deeply flawed you cannot you cannot tell the story from a perspective that you need to when you need to do that uh, like there's particular books that I, I enjoy well enough but they're told first person and and that really gets problematic I, I the particular series that I'm thinking of when you get to the fourth book uh, she really had to uh, switch she, she had to tell part of the story. From the perspective that the film that the book normally is, and then she had to switch perspectives for a while and tell it from somebody else's perspective and then come back, like because she had trapped herself with this first person to- storytelling format. And it just it's so limiting. You can't get the information you need sometimes.
2: And it can be limiting in literature, but I think in literature, it works much more consistently than it does in cinema
0: that's true I, I you know and i was talking about literature but it, I, it, that's what i say though it takes that that aspect that's bad about first person storytelling and then yeah. it combines it with bad filmmaking techniques which just make for a really horrible experience like you were saying clark yeah um and then the other thing that i <laughs> joe did you have anything to add to that before i move on to the next topic
1: no no i i i, I don't feel as strongly against the docu video the cinematography, as y'all do, but I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I, I really despise Shaky Cam. This time around, it didn't give me a headache, but it, it does feel like they're cutting corners. And I felt like I could excuse them because I had heard before seeing the film that it was a low budget film. So I thought, oh, okay. Well, maybe they, that's why they did this. They, 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 you know, it's a low budget film. Okay. Maybe that was their a good excuse but it's 13 million dollars of a low budget i mean what the heck
2: yeah i've seen some great looking movies made for less money than that
1: yep exactly well the other thing that i want to talk
0: about is munch uh munch is played by reese hartwig
1: <laughs> you realize this is the first time we've mentioned him
0: i know that just speaks to even though he was really bad there was other things that were worse about this film um how did this guy make it through casting? How did he stay on the film and, and and I mean you know how when you're trying to keep a straight face and do you know you're trying to fool somebody or trick somebody? I felt like he was trying to keep a straight face throughout the entire movie and the corners of his mouth just sort of kept twitching and turning up like he couldn't take the acting seriously. It's like what the heck? How did he make it into this film?
1: He wasn't cast very well, that's for sure. No. No. But it- did you also notice that like early on they established him as the nerdy boy? but yes. then nothing he did mattered. Nope. Nothing that he did added to the complexity or the technology or the sci-fi element. I was expecting him to use some of his, his knowledge, his expertise at some point to justify his participation. But no, he, he was just the awkward kid that salvaged a lot of computer components and old televisions in his bedroom. And he didn't really convince me that he was a, even a decent nerd. Not at all. Like, Really, if this kid were true to himself, he would have just locked himself up in the bedroom and played video games all day. He wouldn't have been a real nerd. He would have just been a lousy geek. Yeah. But even then, I wasn't convinced that the kid had a lick of acting talent.
0: Yeah, not no, no acting talent at all.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't really have much to add to that other than to say that it, I, I agree with you, too. I mean, I, I guess I can sort of kind of see why he was cast. He has sort of an adorable face, but, mm. yeah, not not much in the way of acting talent. He has the right profile for the part. I mean, if you just look at a still of the guy. Yeah, I can see that. He he, he looks like the character. Um, but, yeah, he doesn't really have the chops to pull it off. And, you know, I, I feel bad saying that about any kid who doesn't really have a yeah. lot of acting experience. You know, it, he's trying, but.
0: Yeah, no, but this again, is a, it this
2: is a big movie. It's 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 not. Right. Well, I wouldn't you know, expect my children to be cast play. in you know in a movie so.
0: because none of them are any good at acting. So I'm I'm <laughs> I'm not saying anything against the the child. I mean, just like yeah. you know, you need to find your niche you in life, like and this isn't it. Kids,
1: TJ. You just you, don't like kids. You know
0: that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but like, seriously, though, like you are you are propelling this guy into a, a a place in life where he needs to find something else to do because he's not good at this thing. So find your niche, and it's something else. I'm, and I am not saying I like I am not an actor; I couldn't do any better. But um, no, this is not your thing. Don't do don't do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <sighs> What? I don't know. It just, he was about as forgettable as echo himself. And the only reason we remember echo is because, you know, they sensationalized him. Yeah. there just wasn't all that much to muster about him.
0: Well, that's all I got guys. Anything else? No, um,
1: I I'm, I'm satisfied. That's a wrap. Okay.
2: Clark. Um, uh, no, I, although I will say, um, I don't know if either of you are gamers or play many video games or such, but um, I'm, I'm I'm looking at Reese Hartwig's resume, and I see that uh, he voiced about, oh, it looks like a couple dozen characters in Skyrim.
0: Okay, uh, that's a game I haven't years.
2: played. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I, I don't really remember any of these characters that are listed here, but yeah, so that's interesting. Interesting. Not really relevant, but...
1: Now on is Skyrim, does it have... A- other kid, char- I mean it has several kid characters?
2: Skyrim has about a bajillion characters if memory serves so it, oh, it's okay. hard to differentiate yeah it's one of these big open world games that you play for 200 hours and has a bajillion different side missions and one of those things so who knows who he was but yeah. yeah. So his
1: performance was forgettable there too, okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and yeah though though I mean he was a voice in a game so it's it's hard to remember a lot of those folks.
0: All right, well let's let's move in for our final ratings, our our final word, our little summary sentences or whatever. Uh, I rate this film two out of five stars, and I say save your money. This film is not worth it. I would not really even recommend getting it on on DVD later or Blu-ray or or whatever the current format is. Uh, it's just not worth it. It's just not a good film.
1: All right, Clark, what was yours? What's your
2: rating? I'm going to go with one and a half stars out of five. Um, just really tedious, lazy filmmaking, and uh, I also would not recommend it as usual. The disclaimer applies that young children will probably enjoy it, but they will but, also probably enjoy something terrible that you can just turn on on Netflix. Yes, so, but do you want
0: to do you want to uh, feed this to your children? Do you want them to like it? I mean, I, I don't even want them to see it because, like, I don't want them to be into horrible movies like this.
2: Well, that's because you're a good father. <laughs>
0: thank, you, thank you. Thank you. All right, Joe. This is your moment to shine.
1: Uh, t- t- 2.5 of five stars. What
0: is wrong with you, man? <laughs> I thought I was being generous
1: with two. Uh, uh, and perhaps uh, my rating is a little distorted because I watched it with my sister. And in the emotion of the moment, I think to myself, you know, I like DT for what it is and I appreciate its importance in cinema, but it, it really isn't one of my favorites. Uh, you know, I regard it highly if, in, for its critical acclaim. But there were elements of this film that I enjoyed because I feel like the film was greater than the sum of its parts. Not uh, by a lot, but it was a little bit greater than the sum of its parts. And for that, it was an enjoyable film. And even so, it's still a rather forgettable one. So, well, and in, in fairness tomorrow, to you, I I'll think- already be tired of it.
2: I think you're hanging around where the majority of critics are hanging around. I mean, it's at 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't good, but it's certainly not awful. Um, So a lot of people evidently did at least find this movie tolerable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I found it just below tolerable, and and you were a little lower than that. So there you go, Claire. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the IMDb rating is 5.9 out of 10, which is actually pretty low for an IMDb rating. I find IMDb ratings usually are at
1: 6 or more. I'm mm-hmm. happy with all of the ratings. I think we're all good here.
0: Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is at 48% as you mentioned. The audience is at 53%, which is pretty low for an audience rating. So, uh, pretty forgettable film. I think we can all agree probably not not don't rush out and watch this one and don't certainly don't see it in the theater.
2: And you know, I know we've got some fairly promising stuff on the horizon for uh our next show. So, I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to, you know, yes. be positive for a change after a couple of weeks of yeah, this is un- overwhelming negativity. This is
0: actually, I feel like, unusual. Usually, I try to stay away from films that I'm really gonna blast, and and, and frustratingly, I expected not to have to blast this one so much. I was yeah. I was hoping it would be better, and I was I was disappointed. Yeah, um, next here. next week, we will be talking about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which I feel like, especially you know, Andy Serkis is involved and, and Gary Oldman. I feel like we're gonna like this one much better. Uh, and the first one uh Rise of the Planet of the Apes was not a horrible film by any stretch of the imagination. no uh, it was
2: a, it was a good sci-fi movie.
0: yeah, so I've, and, I, and I feel like this one's gonna be better even from what I can tell from the trailers. So uh even though I'm a little frustrated, like why are some of the characters from the first film not in the second film whatever we'll, we'll get I suppose <laughs> we'll find out why James Franco wasn't available. I don't know. um but yeah, I, I still feel like we're gonna like it and and hopefully we'll be a little reprieve from this uh this uh lampooning we've been doing of these movies. So that's what we'll be talking about next week. So uh, get yourselves ready with that, uh, you know, get, get and see that, and then you can listen to our podcast and enjoy that. Uh, in the meantime, Clark, where can people find your work and keep up with you, and, and uh, where, where do you want to send them?
2: Uh, people can find me over at DVDverdict.com. That's where I'll write a lot of movie reviews, uh, DVD and Blu-ray reviews, along with a lot of other folks over there, plus my podcast, The Sounds and Sites of Cinema. Can be found there as well. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. Unless you want to hire a private investigator to find me at home, which I would prefer you <laughs> not do. But no, let's, you can. let's not. That do is that. an option.
0: But people, so, I mean, if if they're in the uh, in the area, they could probably pick you up on Whie.
2: Yes, if there are any listeners to this podcast who live in the South Atlanta area, <laughs> um, <laughs> I am on Whie radio doing this, that, and the other thing um, most every day.
0: There you go. And Joe, where may people – it's been a while since you've been a regular, and who knows what things have changed. I know your Twitter handle has changed and, and these sorts of things. So tell us tell us about that, Joe.
1: Yeah, so a lot of a little bit has changed. I am still on Twitter. That is where I'm most active. You can find me. I'm at underscore Joe Darnell on Twitter. And my personal website is where I write and produce screencasts and talk about culture and the arts. And that's JoeDarnell.com.
0: Alright, you can find me, of course, at moviebite.com where I write every day a little something. I try to write at least one review a week or try to make sure there is a review posted on the MovieByte website every week. I don't always succeed, but I try to get there. And of course I post just a little snippet of snippets of things here and there, news and stuff every day, every weekday anyway. So uh be sure to check that out, moviebyte.com. Uh if you want to uh find me on Twitter, you can do that. I am TJ Draper Pro. Uh I post all sorts of things there when, when the mood strikes me. And uh, then if you want to get the show notes for this episode, you can do that at moviebite.com slash mbpodcast slash 96. Can you believe we've done 96 of these episodes? That's, uh, that's where you'll find the show notes for this episode at uh, all the links and goodies that we talked about. Uh, and with that, we're going to sign off, and we're going to uh, see Dawn of the Planet of the Apes this weekend, and we're going to talk about it next week. So we will talk to you then. Thank you guys for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Ta-ta.